It's September 30th, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, it's the great and not so great on gout, chondrocalcinosis, osteoporosis, and misdiagnosis. Ooh, we're good at many of those things. What do you mean, not so great? This is not going to be a Debbie Downer. I'm promising you it's all good news in rheumatology. Um, I like seeing reports that validate crazy things I say. I've always said to patients that if you're going to get a flare, it's likely to come up in the joint that has always bothered you or the joint that first started in you or the joint that was last to go away. And here's a report that actually sort of substantiates that. This is a study of um, JIA patients, many of whom persisted into adulthood, um, and they had 80, 95 patients in whom they had serial assessments over many years. In fact, the mean follow-up here was 12 and a half years. Uh, and the vast majority of them at some point in their disease did get to inactive disease, clinically inactive disease. But as you might expect with an inflammatory arthritis, 81% had at least one or more flares. Uh, and the interesting thing about the flares is that they occurred in joints that were previously affected. And then when they looked at the joints, when they had, for instance, knees that were affected in, in the past, they looked at, did those knees, where there was a bilateral joint, for instance, did, did that knee that came up, was it always on the same side or was it on the contralateral side? That's right. It was in the one that's always bothered you on the same side in 83% of the cases, contralateral 17% of the cases. The sobering thing here is that 40% of flares did occur in joints not previously affected. The bottom line is that flares, if they happen, will continue to extend the disease. And this report, in my experience, the latter, which counts for little, seem to suggest that joints have a specific memory to them as to how and when they're going to be affected. I think flare is the next big horizon. I think we, if, if flare of anything, gout, lupus, RA, PSA, doesn't really matter. In your, what's your treatment? It's always the same. I either inject it or I give a bolus of steroids of some kind. Obviously, these are very different diseases and steroids are chronically dangerous. We need to have a better approach to flare management in all these diseases. Systemic cirrhosis is challenging, uh, and there is, has been in recent reports that we've talked about here, some encouraging data, for instance, with rituximab that came from the last ULAR meeting. Um, there are a few reports in the literature, and there was one, I think, report at ACR 21 about the use of JAK inhibitors in systemic sclerosis. And this particular review that we cite um, looked at two such reports, the majority of patients being treated with tofacitinib and then some being treated with baricitinib, 59 patients in all. And again, there's probably a bias here in reporting. Would they have reported if it was a negative result? Probably not. But nonetheless, uncontrolled, um, not a randomized trial, but giving patients 
a JAK inhibitor with systemic sclerosis had a significant reduction in skin scores as measured by modified Rodman skin scores in 88% of patients. In the 29 of the 59 who had ILD, 28 had no progression of their ILD. They did show that JAK inhibitors, when used, were more likely to be um, effective in treatment-naive patients. I'd like to know how you get away with that, meaning you haven't tried anything else and we're going to go right to a JAK inhibitor. So again, this is sort of selective reporting here, but clearly this kind of data suggests we need to have studies in JAK inhibitors, especially given their success in many cutaneous conditions. Again, the biology between this and psoriasis and eczema and alopecia areata is vastly different, but you know, why not? Gout guidelines were in the news. There were a, a nice report from the French Society who issued its gout guidelines, I think they said 2005, 2003, and they did a study of 300 patients and they showed that those 95% of patients followed the French treatment guidelines for gout. Isn't that amazing? I don't think we do that well here in the United States. Moreover, they were able to treat to treat to target and achieve a serum uric acid of less than six milligrams per deciliter in 59% at six months and 79% at two years. That's unheard of. Almost all studies, even done by rheumatologists, show that you only achieve treat to target less than six milligrams per deciliter in 30 to 40% of your patients. Now, gout patients and the follow-up of gout is very difficult, that I realize. But there are some significant deficits in, in achieving treat-to-target. Well, they're doing it in France by following the guidelines. Uh, they had patients largely on allopurinol, and they had patients who were on higher than 300 and lower than 300, with the mean dose being 300. Um, but that 48% of patients actually had to be on febuxostat with a mean dose of 80 milligrams per day. So what am I saying? following guidelines works in gout. Another report from Lisa Stamp and colleagues looked at 183 patients with gout and the effect of urate-lowering therapy over time. Um, with uh, a long follow-up these patients, after six years, 30% of patients were dead. Not, not good. 30% dead within six and a half years on average. Of the survivors, 82% were on allopurinol, 4% on febuxostat, and 8% were not on urate-lowering therapy. That's good, but the rest of this is not so good. Urate levels were only available in 72%. Why are they not having regular urate levels drawn? We can do better. And yes, only 58% achieved serum uric acid of less than 6 milligrams per deciliter or less than 0.36 millimeters per mole millimoles per liter, I'm sorry. Again, that was the purpose of the trial. But could we do better? We should do better. We as rheumatologists need to do better. A study of osteoarthritis patients undergoing knee replacement looked to see how many of them had chondrocalcinosis or calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease. And they tested the um, definitions that they modified for the definition of CPPD radiographically, where they have a definition that's meant to distinguish CPPD from basic calcium uh, phosphate crystals. And CPPD is defined as linear punctate opacities within cartilage, synovium, joint capsule, tendons, or entheses. The good news is very specific, 92%. Bad news is sensitivity, only about 
And that's kind of, this is kind of what we look for when we're, when we're looking at x-rays. Nonetheless, the positive predictive value is here is strong at 88% if you use those criteria in reading your x-rays. Another study on osteoporosis um, looked at the frequency of osteoporosis in RA patients. This is a cohort, uh, well, actually a meta-analysis of 57 studies over 60,000 uh, osteoporosis patients and over 200,000 RA patients. The, uh, the prevalence of osteoporosis in RA in this meta-analysis is 27.6%. Wow, that's much higher than I would have thought. Yes, I know RA, there are going to be, some are going to be older, some are going to be on steroids, some are going to have inflammation, but I don't think I would have guessed 27%. I don't, I certainly don't practice that way, meaning I don't treat RA and think, oh, I need to check bone densities religiously on my RA patients. You know, I worry more about, about it when they're older or if they have fractures or if they're on steroids. Yeah, that's part of the scheme. But you don't have to be older, have fractures, and be on steroids to be at risk here. RA in itself is a significant risk factor for osteoporosis. So despite all our advances in new therapies, uh, preventative measures, and imaging uh, recommendations, the prevalence of osteoporosis is high in our RA population. I saw this report from the ASBMR meeting. That's the bone, um, uh, the metabolic bone people have their annual meeting, and they just had it. And they had this report that, you know, made me thump my head a little bit, and that is patients who have high ferritin levels, serum ferritin greater than 1,000, or those who had a diagnosis of hemochromatosis or thalassemia, they were 60% more likely to have osteoporotic fractures. There was a twofold increase in vertebral fractures in this group with hyperferinemia. This is with a 10-year follow-up on average. What is going on here? If you look at the literature, there's, a, there's multiple reports showing that ferritin and iron overload states um, does interfere with mineralization of bone. The question is, what are the mechanisms? Some of it is, has to do with why you have a hyperferritinemic state. Ferritin, as you know, behaves in acute phase reactants. So inflammation would drive that. Inflammation would also um, would, would drive up your ferritin, and inflammation would drive down your bone mass. But um, does ferritin get in the way of, of, of GI absorption? Um, patients with ferritin may have hypogonadism. You know, it's hard to know, but again, I, I, I think we should, if you see ferritin, you should be thinking osteoporosis. The Swedish uh, register, they're famous for their registers that do high quality work, gives you a relative um, risk for venous thromboembolic events. This is a study of a very large registry showed that, that um, patients who are um, on TNF inhibitors the risk per 1,000 patient years is five with a TNF inhibitor. With a jack, it's double, it's 11.3. In the general population, it's only three. And this is kind of what you see in the literature. Three to five for the general population, it goes up five to 10 with being elderly. In RA patients, it's 10 to 15, and it's closer to 15 per um, that 1,000 patient years if you're on a TNF inhibitor, but it really goes up threefold or more from 30 to 45 per 1,000 in if you're on a jack inhibitor. Um, so anyway, um, you know, scratch those numbers. Uh, let's stick with the numbers in this report. 
the numbers I just gave you, pardon me, I got a little carried away with, that was zoster risk numbers. So I'm starting to confuse my adverse events here. So we're talking about Venus rhombombolic events. Again, general population three per 1,000, Jack inhibitor, uh, TNF inhibitor five per 1,000, Jack inhibitor double that 11 per 1,000. So again, um, you need to, I think, uh, know that our patients obviously with RA are at greater risk, and we know that inflammation drives that risk and disease activity drives that risk, hence the use of the TNF inhibitor and the JAK inhibitor. Uh, the Nurses Health Study always comes up with useful information. They have a recent one, which is also a bit of a head scratcher, showing that when you look at all their patients from 1986 to 2017, not patients, but actually nurses volunteering um, data via surveys done twice a year, uh, they showed that chronic low sleep duration, less than five hours a night, was associated with a higher risk of developing lupus, a two and a half fold higher risk. Um, this is if you compare less than five hours to more than seven hours of sleep. So maybe there's something restorative and protective about more than seven hours and maybe not so protective if you're doing five hours. We do know that stress uh, which is certainly going to be a problem when it comes to sleep, also adds to risk for many autoimmune diseases. Low sleep um, duration was also associated with more body pain and more depression. So I put up a review of IL-18 uh, that you can look at. IL-18 will be getting more press in the years to come as a mediator for inflammatory disease um, and disorders of the innate immune system. Uh, as you know, IL-18 has been shown to be elevated uh, in patients with Stills disease and MAS, um, and that serum levels may turn out to be a good biomarker for that condition. More importantly, we're now starting to see therapies that are going to target uh, IL-18 as a, a pro-inflammatory cytokine that sort of mirrors what happens with IL-1. Um, and that may be a new therapy in the future for stills and a lot of other auto-inflammatory and maybe just um, even autoimmune conditions. The Scleroderma Spanish uh, Registry looked at its cohort looking at cancer risk and shows, not surprisingly, an increased risk of, can uh, of, of specific cancers, breast, lung, um, hematologic and colorectal. Um, you know, colorectal is often related to polyposis. It is often prevented by taking nonsteroidals. If you have scleroderma, you're not likely taking nonsteroidals given all the esophageal and gastric problems that you have. Uh, and nonsteroidals tend to be somewhat protective also for breast. Um, so uh, not so much for lung. Uh, again, there is this, uh, that old, I don't know if it was an Ehrlich or Ron Paul cartoon of a happy smiley face being normal, a sort of um, frowning face being autoimmune and an unhappy face being cancer, suggesting that there's this continuum of, uh, of immune dysregulation between autoimmune states and cancer. Hence, all of our patients with autoimmune disease always seem to have a higher risk of cancer. I put up this report about the uncommon uh, misdiagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, this is a large cohort from the BARFOT study, the Better Anti-Rheumatic Pharmacotherapy Study. This is an early RA cohort that enrolled a lot of patients. They looked at patients who were followed over time as cohort of almost 2,500 and found amongst that group only 1.8% were misdiagnosed. Now, that's encouraging, right? Um, you know, uh, there's another uh, report, 
I imagine to be in the study, you might have had to have been seropositive, or that was one of the criteria. Uh, Tuliki Soka had a report on what's the outcome of patients with seronegative RA, showing that uh, only a third of them actually kept the diagnosis of RA over time. So uh, in this study, they also showed the same thing. If you're seropositive, uh, you're more likely to truly end up with RA, but you need to worry about this in patients who in fact are seronegative. We have two um, questions from um, listeners. Um, the first one is an email from Malini uh, Venkatran. Malini is from Michigan. And she sent me an email um, about the, um, and she was sort of shy about saying that it kind of bothers her that bread and butter conditions like osteoarthritis, things we see a lot of, we're really not that good at managing. And she kind of points out that maybe her best therapy is a trial of steroids, um, which, you know, she will do from time to time when, and even if there is no swelling or synovitis. So what's going on with that? And why aren't we doing better? Well, we do need more research. We do need better drugs. And, and I've said before on this podcast, my best regimen for osteoarthritis is 2,000 to 3,000 milligrams of extended-release acetaminophen taken as one dose every morning with or without a very tiny dose of steroids, 2 milligrams, 2.5 milligrams that you can go on and off of based on what's going on. Um, Malini says that, you know, she looks for joint effusions. Sometimes they're there. And the patient has what you might call wet osteoarthritis, maybe with an effusion by ultrasound or by exam. Maybe they do better. She's looked for alternative diagnoses over time like PSA and seldom seems that in her experience, you know, the other things we use like glucosamine, chondroitin sulfate work in only a minority of patients. Uh, Malini, I think you're okay. I think, you know, you have to always counsel a patient and be very selective about who you give steroids to because these are older patients. Uh, and chronic um, use of even five milligrams does have a significant downside. So minimizing that, but then utilize it as much as possible, but then utilizing it when it's crucial to the patient. You know, a good example for me is um, an old guy who comes into the VA clinic um, twice a year, but he comes in the beginning of June every year because he wants to play in a golf tournament. He's got really bad OA of the knees, um, a little bit in the hip, and he wants a shot of steroids. Uh, and, a, and a steroid taper so that he can play golf with his son and grandson, um, have a great uh, early summer, and she says that lasts him throughout the summer. By Christmas, he's back to you know, not doing very well, taking analgesic therapies, and he toughs it out. He didn't want to have surgery. But, you know, periodic use makes sense. The patient who's going to go on a tra travel trip, you know, I usually up their dose of whatever. I tell them to, they're on non-steroidal, add in Tylenol. If they're on, uh, you know, uh, Tylenol, take a short course of steroids on days you're traveling and days that you're getting settled um, and, and do that when you're coming back. It makes the travel so much easier. Uh, our second, actually, we have a recorded message um, from Massachusetts, Dr. Vasudevan. Hello, Dr. Quish. This is Dr. Vasudevan from Mansfield, Massachusetts. I have a 76-year-old female with long-standing seropositive nodular rheumatoid arthritis, treated with multiple biologics, developed metastatic breast cancer on Enbrel in 2019, came off Enbrel, treated with chemo and immunotherapy, now off chemotherapy for two to three months. 
I saw her with severely progressive rheumatoid arthritis on methotrexate uh, with serious subluxation in the last which progressed in the last 6 months my question for you is do you have any reservation adding her on another biologic if no which do you have a preference on which biologic to choose thank you very much Thank you, Dr. Vasudeva. And it's a very common issue. We deal with this all the time. I'll point to the ACR guidelines on this, which I think are spot on, perfect. A patient who has a solid tumor of any kind, breast cancer is a solid tumor, lung cancer is a solid tumor, prostate a solid tumor, should be treated as if they don't have cancer at all. Meaning you keep using whatever you want to use. Yes, I know the, the oncologist says, I don't want to use that. I'm, I don't stop, stop that rheumatologic medicine. They, they're telling you what they don't know. So it's okay for some of them because they're, they're going to have immune suppression, but not always when they take their immunotherapy or their um, you know, immunosuppressive chemotherapy. But you have to be aggressive in following them and monitoring them. No, I would use any DMARD. I would use any biologic um, so, yes, I would throw back in a TNF inhibitor if this TNF inhibitor worked great in the past. I would also use an IL-6 inhibitor, an IL-1 inhibitor. I'd use a JAK inhibitor. I'd use rituximab. No, I don't believe rituximab is the way to go here. That's, that makes no sense at all. Even though it's in some of the guidelines, it makes no sense at all. In fact, if you look at patients who have cancer uh, and what biologics they get, there's way more experience with TNF inhibitors than any other of the biologics. Showing safety, by the way. And no downside. So uh, those of you who are afraid really need to read the literature or send me another Ask Kush anything and we'll continue to discuss this. I've been saying this for, geez, almost 15 years now, but yet many uh, of our colleagues are really worried about using a biologic and someone has any kind of cancer, a past history of cancer. Again, solid tumors doesn't matter. Um, Hematologic tumors, we'll discuss that on another day. Take care. Be safe.